Today on The Black Goat, we discuss burnout and recent conversations connecting it to the concept of moral injury and a letter about reviewing papers from underrepresented regions. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. Um, Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier, my co-hosts, uh, I apologize that you guys can't see me. I know you're just looking at a cloud of smoke uh, um, through the Zoom lens. Uh, I promise I'm, I'm here somewhere. Yeah, I've like, so I've followed more news sources on Instagram recently. So I see like a lot of um, photos that are posted by like BBC and New York Times and stuff like that. And the photos are, um, like just terrifying um, in California and Oregon. Yeah, That's interesting, so, one of the things I've heard is that like the news sources that aren't based on the West Coast aren't covering it very much. Like they cover it a bit, but it doesn't get like front page coverage. So it's good that they're posting photos and it's still getting out there. Yeah, I've, I guess a I've cynical interpretation yeah. would be that it's like an easily photographed right. Um, right. event. I've definitely talked to people on the East Coast who know about California, but then they're surprised when I mention it, <laughs> Oregon, <laughs> what's going on in Oregon. But yeah, no, so I should, I mean, I, I guess for our listeners, it's funny because we record this, we're recording this a week before it's going to come out. So this is like a little bit of a time capsule. So like, you know, if, if I'm dead a week from now because my house burned down, you know, you can all laugh about the irony of me talking about this or whatever, but no, so, um, yeah, so for people who, who don't know or maybe only followed along a little bit, um, you know, the, the West Coast of the United States is just having a horrific um, fire season, I guess you would call it. I don't know. There's, there's just wildfires all up and down the coast. And so I live in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, um, we, there was a very large wildfire just east of Eugene that for a while was, um, that, that destroyed some small communities and for a while was threatening, potentially threatening the population center, Eugene and Springfield. Um, that seems to have diminished, but uh, the entire Western part of the state is covered in very thick smoke now. And so um, uh, the, you know, the, the, there's this like, little infographic on the local air quality, whatever monitoring station um, that like, it's these like this little like chart and it's got a little needle that shows you how the air quality is. And it's been literally off the chart for more than a week. Um, the, the chart, it has these little labels like healthy and you know unhealthy for sensitive groups. And then the highest one on the chart that starts at 200 is hazardous and the chart goes up to 300 and we've been it's it's gotten as high as like 800 in oh, in Eugene. Wow. It's it's like it's like if you're if you're camping and you're sitting on the downwind side when the camp of the campfire and it blows towards you, it's like that outside basically. Oh and so Davis was also in the under. Someone sent me a screenshot. It's basically like unsafe for to go outside even for a minute for anybody, even like very healthy people. Yeah, <laughs> like that yeah. was like the the only words they could put to it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it, you know, it's just—I mean, it's climate change, is what it is, and it—it's you know, I think what so you know, we've had smoke here before in the last few years. Um, it's blown in from farther away. What I mean, just to this to you know, to give you like a very hyper local example of how climate change is affecting things. The reason, part of the reason that this is so unusual in Oregon is, you know, for people who, who aren't familiar with Oregon, which is probably most people, right? Like the, if you imagine a picture of the state of Oregon, uh, you know, the left side is, and if you're not from the US, you don't even know what that looks like. Just picture a rectangle, okay? So <laughs> on, on the left side is the Pacific Ocean, about a third of the way in is, is the Cascade Mountains, which is a very tall mountain range. The, the left side of that is wet, the right side of that is dry. That's kind of what Oregon is like. Um, and, and so, most people live on the left, right? And most people live on the left. So the population centers are, that's why the stereotype of Oregon is that it's rainy, whatever, because that's where most people live. Actually, there's a desert on the other side, but that's far less populated. So the dry side historically has wildfires, like they're just part of the natural cycle, but the, the wet side doesn't. And when I say wet, I mean like there are 
there are like areas that are literal rainforest um, that have caught fire. Uh, um, most, most of the fires are not the literal rainforest, but the, there have been some, but it's like, it's just stuff that does not naturally burn more than once every couple hundred years. Um, and so what happened was like, because of climate change, it started drying out. And so it was just, it's just this giant pile of kindling. And so there was uh, this shift in the wind that happened about a week ago, week and a half ago, um, that where the wind was suddenly started coming off the desert. And so all this dry, warm air blew through and it was like blowing a bellows on a pile of kindling in a fireplace, any spark started it up. And so, uh, so that's kind of what's happening in, in Oregon. There's now, I can't even remember, 30, 40 fires. They had to evacuate a city of 82,000 people that was threatened by a wildfire, Medford, Oregon. Um, and this is just kind of like the new normal. So it, like I said, we've had very thick smoke three out of the last four years. Um, sometimes from California has actually brought us to hazardous air quality in Oregon because the fires in California have been so big. And if the wind is blowing in the right direction, it comes up here. Um, this is not normal. This is not natural. This is like yeah, I heard the world plane, we live in yeah. now. Land like there have been plane like planes yeah. that couldn't land yep. in California. They've been canceling flights. Yeah. yeah, and and so there's nowhere to escape to either, or there there hasn't been. Today, for the first time, the coast uh, um, had good air quality, and so my wife and son drove out literally to breathe. I mean, that was that was like they didn't have plans. They they're not like oh we're gonna go to this site or we're gonna do this thing. They're like we're just gonna go to the coast to breathe for a few hours and then come back because that's that's kind of where. But the not world close is to other people because we can't. Right. Other people. I know yeah. it's the, yeah. yeah. Sanjay and I were just talking about this. This sort of like double whammy of like you you can't go outside and you can't be inside with people. Yeah, yeah, and that that's what's because of the pandemic. Like so, when we've had smoke in in the past, you know, I mean, it, my family we're lucky that we we have a house and you know, we still have a house and and we have portable air purifiers running. But like a lot of people live in older homes that are drafty, they don't have air conditioning, they don't have, you know, anything, you know, at least in the past, you could like go to the movies, go to the mall, somewhere to escape. Now you can't even do that. And I'm very worried about people's health, uh, you know, us somewhat, but, but people in my community who don't have access to things much more so. Um, it's been really tough because there are all these people who are evacuated um, the evacuation zone was 10 miles from my house was where it started. It's, it's insane. And, and so there's all these people whose homes burned down or they're, they're still in, a, in an evacuation zone who, you know, the, the, the county is trying to find places to put them. Um, you know, it's, you know, put, so they're trying to find like socially, so they have to find huge amounts of space because they have to socially distance them. And so they're like, putting them in high school gymnasiums, you know, spaced, spacing the families apart, but they need a whole bunch of them. They're putting them in sports facilities, like indoor sports. It's just, it's out of control. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and this is just, it's crazy to think like, I mean, this is, like I said, this is, this is sort of a micro example of just how climate change it's fucking here. It's not like we've been talking for decades about how it's this far off problem that's the problem that the climate change, you know, it's hard to get people to act because it's far off. Well, guess, guess what? It's, it's here, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, we're behind like, like, you know, Pacific Island communities have been saying it's here for, for years now as, as they're, you know, losing their, their literal islands and things like that. But it's like, you know, it, it's, it's here and it's, uh, you know, I don't know. We're talking yeah, about like burnout today, so I'm gonna I'll save some of my hopelessness for later in the episode. But <laughs> right. uh, yeah, this is a very burn themed episode, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I was talking to to one of my grad students earlier today. I was saying we're doing an episode about burnout. And he's like, "Oh, and the first part's going to be about burning, right?" And I was like, yeah. "Yep, that's uh, that's probably it." Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other the other images I'm seeing on my um, the news sites on my Instagram feed are of. Florida being under five feet of water. So there's also that. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's something else. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, well, you know, this is like, where do we, you know, I mean, short term, there's nowhere to go because it's 
there's nowhere you can't fly and there's nowhere with, I mean, a friend of mine drove to Utah to get away from this. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's crazy, but uh, you know, everywhere is going to have something, whether it's, it's flooding, whether it's fires. Yeah. And then like, yeah, we had a bad fire season in Australia last summer. And now when we go hiking, like we have to like be like, Oh, which forest can we go to where it's not just all charred trees? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's, yeah, well. yeah, I mean, that's not the most important consequence, mm-hmm. but also, so many animals were killed and people lost their homes and all this stuff. Yeah. That, that doesn't, when the fires end, that doesn't all of a sudden reset back to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, on that cheery note, should we, <laughs> uh, should we shift gears to our letter of the week? Yes. Let's read our letter. Um, this letter is a little longer than usual, but I think that um, all of it is worth reading. So we'll read it all. Dear Goats, like all of us, I am sometimes asked to review papers by authors from what, for lack of a better word, I'll refer to as the global south, countries that are underrepresented in the scientific discourse. Psychology clearly has a massive problem with regional representation, and I'd like my reviews to make a contribution to alleviating that, however small it may be. It strikes me that most of the papers I've reviewed struggle with similar issues. They are certainly not unique to papers from the global south, but at least in my experience, more prevalent in these and probably reflective of structural disadvantages. I'd like to hear your advice on dealing with these issues as a reviewer with an eye towards being constructive and helpful to the authors. Some things I've noticed more frequently. The paper is not embedded in the contemporary discourse. For example, the paper will be framed around theories that are outdated or otherwise marginal. Alternatively, theory is a grab bag. For example, multiple mechanisms are each justified with a different unrelated theory. A related, perhaps underlying issue is that authors don't seem to have access to literature, so they rely on what's available online. Consequently, standard references are missing, but are replaced with more obscure publications, in the worst cases, in predatory journals. Data consists of cross-sectional surveys, behavioral measures, or other quote-unquote fancy data are rare. Often the analysis is too complex for the data. However, sample sizes, for example, are typically decent. There are occasional grammar issues, but more importantly, it seems that authors cannot always convey their ideas in English, a massive disadvantage for anybody outside the Anglosphere. Again, these issues absolutely don't befall all papers from a particular region, nor are they exclusive to papers from the Global South, but they are quite common. Perhaps you may have noticed other issues yourself. As a reviewer, I always hope to help the authors craft a stronger paper. Uh, Perhaps you have some suggestions on how to do that from your own experience as reviewers and editors. Sincerely, reviewer 1.5. So this letter I find particularly challenging. So um, as I was going through uh, the letters to decide what we were gonna talk about this episode, um, this one has stood out to me as one that is a really interesting question that's an important thing to discuss and also something that I feel very ill-equipped to provide a good answer to. I'll start by, I guess, like maybe taking a piece of it, which is, um, so one of the things the authors mentioned is the, um, the issue of the paper not being embedded in the contemporary discourse. So not necessarily like quoting um, or referring to the theory that um, would be the go-to for let's say like American um, authors um, and a sort of unrelated or sorry, a potentially related issue of not having access to the literature. Um, And maybe I guess I see an avenue for um, being more open to those kinds of aspects of papers now um, as at least some editors and reviewers and journals are putting less emphasis on um, theory as, uh, so I know this isn't universally true, but it seems like there are some people who are, I guess, more interested in putting the emphasis on the methodology um, and less concerned about um, putting the emphasis on theory and making sure things are theoretically grounded and making sure the papers are advancing theory. So for instance, at at Calabra, um, part of the um, approach to handling and reviewing papers at Calabra is to not consider whether they're uh, the novelty of the, the findings. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that editors at Collabora are 
ignoring theory, but there's less of an onus on authors to say, okay, what's the existing theory and how is my paper advancing that theory? And potentially more room to say, um, here's an interesting question. Um, here's why I think it's interesting and not necessarily embedding that in theory. Um, and then, you know, if the, um, if the methods are good and they test in like an interesting question, then, um, then that paper can be a valid evaluated on those merits. Um, so that was one thought I had while I was reading this letter. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, it's fair to say, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I think all of us kind of had that reaction that like, you know, and, but it's all, you know, just echo what you said, Alexa, that I, I feel I would really, I think, I think maybe I speak for all of us that I would really like to hear from someone who's working in one of the less represented countries, what their perspective on this is. Um, but yeah, I had a, a, you know, a similar kind of response to that issue. And, and part of me wanted to know, the letter doesn't say what area subfield this person's working in. And, and to me, it varies quite a bit, right? So there's, I think in social and personality, there's still a lot of room for and value of descriptive work, especially descriptive work from outside of the usual areas. And in, in those fields, theories tend to come and go as a fad, and they tend to be oftentimes a thing that we're overly rewarded for having a like cool sounding one. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an area where less, I, I actually, I've done this in papers that are not like, to my knowledge from outside of like countries that are well represented. But I've, you know, I've done this as a reviewer to say like, hey, I think the findings are interesting. Um, I, I think the like the, the story doesn't need to be there. It, it doesn't sort of line up or whatever. Just like I just like I think the I think a more question driven approach would actually make this better. Blah blah blah. I've done that as a reviewer. I think if the, if this is so, that's one possibility. You know, another and and so I think sometimes as a reviewer you can if you feel like the authors are doing something, it's, it's hard, it's really hard to read this into it, but if you feel like the authors are doing something because they think they have to and they, their hearts aren't in it, sometimes as a reviewer, the best thing you can do is run interference for them to do something different, for them to, to do something that's truer to, to you know, the actual data and design and things like that. On the other hand, if this is like work in a sub area where theories really are more cumulative, where being out of date would really undermine the integrity of the conclusions and that sort of thing. I, I would probably give a different mm -hmm. sort of answer. Um, so that's a little hard to know, but at least, yeah, if, if I'm sort of projecting my own area and I'd be like, yeah, probably if, if this is a sample from some part of the world that isn't studied very much in the field, then there's more value. I mean, there's all, I think, we need a lot more descriptive research in social psychology and personality psychology, but especially descriptive research from people in contexts that are not already overrepresented. Yeah, I think that from I can very much resonate with the kind of general theme of this letter. I recognize this experience when I've been an editor getting papers from countries where we almost never get papers from and and especially in countries where training isn't in English and feeling like, oh, they haven't read the formula. They haven't got the memo about like mm -hmm. what a paper in this type of journal typically looks like. And, and then I think it's a real challenge to figure out how much of those formulas and rituals are actually necessary and meaningful mm -hmm. and how much it's like, why would we want them to like fit their paper to this template of what we're used to seeing? I think that's what's really hard. Like how much of these differences are superficial and silly things that we've come to expect because that's just what a typical paper looks like and how much does it actually affect the quality and readability or whatever of the paper is really hard to distinguish those things. But yeah, I also agree with what you were just saying, Sanjay, that like in some ways it's especially tragic when those papers get rejected because of these superficial things because the data are almost inherently more valuable than yeah. the same data from the US or whatever. If you have even just like a cross-sectional correlational self-report survey, like 
in the US, we already know what a lot of those results are going to look like with college students, blah, blah. But even that very simple question of like, how, what correlates with what in self-reports, if it's from a context that's very different that we don't know much about, that's actually very valuable data. And so I've often found myself wishing that we could invest in ways to help those data see the light of day. And there are cases where, yeah, the, the underlying design and data are great, but the paper needs a lot of work in order for a reader, even a motivated reader, to be able to make sense of it. And in those situations, I think journals that have resources really ought to try to invest in helping mm -hmm. those papers make it through and get published. And when I was applying for editor-in-chief at Psych Science, one of the things I proposed, I kind of framed it as like, look, the world is starting, people are starting to demand more of paywalled journals. Like if you're going to be charging subscription, all that, it's going to become more and more important that you justify what you're providing that justifies the paywall. I'm not sure anything can justify a paywall, but I think maybe if journals were doing things like if we get a really, a paper where the core of it is really good, the science is really good, the problem is in the presentation, then we will provide resources for those authors to help them improve the, the, the presentation so that the paper could get published in our journal. Um, if you have money coming in, millions of dollars coming in from subscriptions, why not spend some of that, just hire people to, then they, then they work on contracts with those authors and help them make their paper fit the mold better in the ways that are important. And then let's try to resist making them fit the mold in the ways that aren't important. Yeah, that's um, a great idea. I think some of it's just simply a resource money problem. And I would like to see those with resources spending money on this. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, I think it's tough to know where, so, so in some ways, like, there are some ways that someone who's outside of the sort of mainstream discourse probably like you get to come up with a good justification for why they should make certain changes, but also, you know, in some ways we should be diversifying the discourse and, and it's not always like super clear which one it is. Right. But like, there are definitely ways that like ways of talking or ways of citing certain things are just a way to signal that you're like one of the cool kids, you know, and it's, it's like, um, it's like, oh my God, you're wearing bootcut jeans. You know, nobody wears bootcut jeans. It's like, mm -hmm. that's not legitimate. It's like, okay, if we're going, you know, if we're going diving and you're not wearing a wetsuit, like that's relevant. But if we're like hanging out and you're wearing bootcut jeans, fuck it, wear your bootcut jeans or your, you know, kurta or, you know, whatever, I don't know, and you know, some something. People. Yeah. It's just like, you're just not buying into the culture and the way we talk. It's, this isn't fucking high school, you know, like. In some cases the yeah. culture is actually harmful. So like yeah. one thing I see a lot from papers that have less, that seem less embedded in whatever, that fit less like the mold, they'll present full correlation matrices, whereas mm -hmm. papers from the US will cherry pick a few correlations and tell a whole story mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Actually, we should be doing more of what we're not doing, of the full correlation matrix. Um, so in some cases, yeah, the like trend is, or the mold that we're trying to fit it into is actually making the paper worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I do think there, there are some things in here. The one thing that sort of stood out to me is like clearly a thing where there ought to be help is like if they're citing predatory journals like mm -hmm. that, that is, I think that's a pretty concrete indication. Like, again, I would, if, if you're like, oh, they're not citing the things I would have cited. If that was all it was, I'd, I'd be questioning myself. But if it's like, oh, no, they're citing like, you know, some you know, something that like I can very concretely say is not a good place to be going, then then yeah, like I think at that point as a reviewer saying like, you know, this this is not a credible source, but here here's some and especially like here's a sci archive link to a preprint of the paywalled journal article that you should be covering. Um, and if you're you know, if you're the reviewer, you want them to cite your work, put it up on a on a, you know, put it on Sci Archive and then tell them to cite, cite that or something. Um, sorry, I'm trying to make open science self-serving. It's probably just like a mixed bag of bad values. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so no, but I mean, things like that. I, I think also, I'm curious, what what do you think of the two of you think of the, the language, the English thing? Because I think that I've definitely heard people from uh, countries where the the sort of, the general language is not English, but also like university instruction tends not to be English. Talk about that being, and I think there, there are some ways in which, I, you know, you can make both kinds of arguments, right? You can say like, look, for a 
for a field to have scientific exchange, there has to be a lingua franca. And yes, it reflects historical hegemonies and colonialism, things like that, the fact that it's English, but it's gotta be something, right? That's one argument people will make. But another is to say like, no, you know, like saying not only it has to be in English, but it has to be in like, you know, standard written English of the United States and Western Europe is just, it's it's like the bootcut jeans thing. It's just a way of, it's like, if you can read it and understand the message they're saying, then, then you know the the fact that the the diction is not what you would have written or something is less important. But I'm uh, between those two arguments. Where where do the two of you fall? Yeah, I mean, I guess I I'm not sure where I fall between those two arguments. But I do think like my my initial response was like you know maybe maybe this disadvantage doesn't have to always be a disadvantage or whatever. Um, but I do think the language. Um, issue is a huge disadvantage for authors outside of, um, yeah, whose training was not in English or trying to publish in, um, in English journals. And I think the letter writer um, notes that it's not just about grammar issues, right? It's also about uh, conveying your ideas. And if I like, I'm, I mean, the only language I speak is English. Um, if I imagine trying to convey my ideas in um, even languages that I've had, like I, I took for many years in school, like French, like it would be impossible for me to not just like put together sentences, but also to like appropriately convey, um, yeah, I don't know, like the theoretical context or why an idea might be important or get into the nuances of, um, interpreting the data. Like when I'm writing a paper in English, sometimes it takes me like, five minutes to get a sentence exactly right because it's a, you know, it's a complicated idea and I want to um, get the, the words exactly right. So that, I mean, I don't want to deny that there are um, these like structural disadvantages that I don't think are, are easily addressed. Yeah. I think part of the problem is that sometimes the language barrier is big enough that the message isn't coming across. And so I think mm -hmm. that's the real, when the message is coming across and it's about like, you know, stylistic things, I've gotten more and more to where like, I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's so mm -hmm. many bigger problems with papers that if it like requires a bit more effort on the part of the reader to figure out, um, I'm okay with that. Although I do think it's a disadvantage to those authors. They're gonna get cited less, their papers will have less yeah. impact. So if, so why not offer more resources if we have them and if the authors want them. So even in cases where the message still comes through, if the language is a, some makes it a little bit harder for people to get the message, then I think we should be offering really concrete support for that kind of thing. And in cases where the message isn't coming through, that's really tough. Like I have a hard time when I'm reviewing a paper and I'm really struggling to understand what was done, what the methods were, for example, um, I think that's I, I think that's a problem for a longer episode and mm -hmm. um, maybe a broader. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't know another that just it's like kind of like talking about the GRE and how there's there's inequities, but they start much much earlier. And so like talking about the GRE yeah, is the wrong exactly. level of talking about it. it's like talking about like what should a journal do? I do think we have to grapple with that, but really, like how do we provide more resources and make things more equal generally is I think what that's really getting at when you're at the point where people are doing good science, but not even able to communicate to the English speaking world in a way that makes it clear that they are doing good science, then we should, we should care about that, that we're missing out on, um, on good science that's happening because we're requiring people to communicate in English. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any good ideas for solution to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think as a, as a reviewer, I would like I would caution people about bringing that up at all. Like if you understand what's going on, then that's the editor's job to like clean up, you know, and, and the journal's job to offer resources and the editor's job to do it. And if you don't understand what, what they're saying, you don't have to frame it in terms of their English proficiency. You can just say, because I have certainly had that with papers that I'm pretty sure were written by native English speakers. It's just like scientific writing sometimes is dense, sometimes people I've certainly written plenty of sentences in my life that don't make sense. I've spoken many, um, but, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, 
it's not your job to call it to English because there is, I think it, it's, you have to be really careful because there, there are people over apply that. It's a stereotype. I've certainly, you know, I've had people compliment me on how my English is. And I'm like, fuck yeah, I grew up in the United States. I think you're saying that because you think I'm not from here mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, fuck you, that's a stereotype. You know, it's just like, I, and yes, it, it really does happen. Of course, the people who aren't native English speakers sometimes don't, you know, don't write perfect English or whatever, but it's like, just focus on the thing. Like, did you understand what they were saying? If so, let the let someone else handle the style. And if not, just say, you know, the, there was a, you know, key passage that I, and use I statements. I had difficulty understanding, you know, the, the you know, this page seven or, you know, whatever, um, uh, make it about you. And, and that, and it's kind of the editor's job, I think, because the editor hopefully knows, or if they're Samin, will look up afterwards the identity of the authors and, and have more context to be able to, to sort of know what kind of situation it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess getting back to the letter writer, what can you do as a reviewer to help yeah, not at least not make things worse, new situations where there's already huge disadvantages. I do think like having an open mind about what a typical paper looks like, like throw that out the window and ask, is this valuable? Like with this scientific, mm-hmm. and not just like right now, the people who read this journal, but like, could you imagine someone in the future stumbling on this paper and thinking, oh, this is exactly the data I was looking for. Or like, yeah, I want, I, you know, I wanted this information. And that's really what the purpose of a publication ought mm-hmm. to be is to communicate information. The communication part is important too. So like, I'm not saying don't weigh that at all, the presentation of communication, but like be open to different ways of presenting information and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And not even people in the future, but people right now, maybe in this author's context who aren't being represented in the literature, who right now, if this paper comes out, it's going to help them as scientists or it's going to help them in, in applications or, or other, other kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I would, I would, I guess I'll just repeat the call from earlier. Like I would be very mm-hmm. interested in hearing from people who have experience, who, who maybe have the perspective of the author that this letter writer is writing about, like, how would, you know, how do they see this? How would they like to be, treated and dealt with, um, uh, you know, what's their perspective, what do they think are, are valid or invalid points, either from the letter or things that we've said, because um, I think we're, we're very aware of our limitations on this. We're all from, you know, uh, we all got our PhDs in the US or Canada, if, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, th- thank you, reviewer 1.5. Um, and yeah, if you are listening and you would like to contact us, if you if you have a perspective that we didn't represent well, we would love to hear from you. Um, and also just if you have a letter to write to us to address on a future episode or just want to get in touch with us, our email address is letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Our Twitter is at BlackoutPod. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify to listen to us. And uh, we always appreciate hearing from people and we appreciate people listening to us and, and uh, knowing that people out there are listening to us. Um, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about burnout. And burnout is a big topic. It's a, it's been an area of research for at least half a century, I think. Um, some of, there were, there were a couple of reasons that I think it was on, it's been on my mind a lot lately. Mm -hmm. One is just, um, I think with everything that's going on right now with, uh, the pandemic, um, putting a lot of stress on people with the, you know, I think in, in, especially in the US, but I think this has also been echoed in other parts of the world, there's much more attention right now to issues of racial justice and state violence um, against black people and, and other ethnic minorities. There is, you know, right now my state's on fire, mm-hmm. um, you know, people in the West Coast of the US, but a lot of people facing different kinds of environmental uh, constraints. So there's, there's a lot of sources of stress on people. There's also 
long-term trends in higher education and academia that I think are, are relevant of, you know, and we might get into those about incentives, about resources or lack of resources. Some of those intersect with some of the things that I just mentioned. So like, there's a lot of interest in trying to work on racial justice issues. There's in academia, there's not always resources available to do that or support from other people available to do that. So that, that's one sort of angle on it. It was like, it kind of seems rel very relevant to the times right now. I, I think there's, in my perspective, I'm very worried about um, people I work with, people in academia as a whole being at risk of burnout. And then I think the other strand on this that, that very much connects to these issues is that there's been, I think this has mostly come from medical people who talk about burnout. And I'm not sure how much of this is from burnout researchers versus just sort of people in that community talking about it. But there's kind of been this very recent increase in conversation connecting burnout to the concept of moral injury. Um, and I think that, that that has some special relevance to some of the reasons why you know, people are concerned about burnout happening right now. Um, and so we're going to post a couple of, of links. There's a, a really good article from Stat News about um, sort of applying the concept of moral injury to understanding burnout among healthcare practitioners. Um, but that, that's sort of the, the background for it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, from the two of you, how much, you know, how much have you thought about or seen burnout discussions about burnout happening recently with everything that's going on? Has that been something that your department, your university is talking about? Is that something you feel like your colleagues are talking about or not? Because it's often a thing people don't talk about. Yeah, I mean, maybe what's what I've noticed is probably like a common version, um, which is like, I haven't heard a lot of people using the word burnout or talking about things in those terms. Um, but I guess I do see a lot of people like um, just seeming totally overwhelmed by, um, by what their job is requiring of them right now and the combination of their job and things that are going on in the world. And um, yeah, so I like I see the maybe the signs of burnout more than not not to not to attribute burnout to people who who wouldn't label that in themselves but signs that we would associate with burnout more so than people explicitly calling it that yeah I mean maybe we should say just a little bit about what so there you know there's sure. research I think Christina Maslach is probably one of the researchers who's who's most strongly associated with this the the biggest measure is the Maslach burnout inventory and yeah the kind of the three there's, there's a sort of like three facet definition that it's exhaustion depersonalization so feeling sort of distant from your work um, or disconnected from your work and then reduced professional efficacy and it's sort of like you know burnout I think has become this word that's kind of got this like cultural currency and sometimes when things when that happens you kind of like put it on this elevated thing and you're like Oh, well, that's like something very serious and severe. And, and there's, you know, some interesting, like the World Health Organization at one point, I think classified burnout as a disease. They had it in the like ICD-9 or something like mm -hmm. that. And, and I think like putting it in that mode, you know, can, and I think Christina Maslach actually might have been one of the people who sort of criticized that, but, but putting it in, in that sort of elevates it. But then when you say like, do you feel like, do you feel exhausted, disconnected from your job and like you're not doing as good a job as usual? Yeah, I, I right. think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I, I've, that's, that's a continuum that I'm always somewhere on. I mean, that, yeah, that's right. kind of my, my reaction to it is like, to some extent, always yes. Um, on better days, not too much, but like that, that feels much more real and much more personal and much more kind of like, Oh yeah, I know people. I, I I felt that myself, you know, and I I know people who are, you know, who look like they're going through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something I've heard a lot of people talk about. Um, I'm I'm guessing since the pandemic, people talk about it a lot more. But I've also I'm weirdly not connected to uh, many departments since the pandemic because I switched jobs and haven't actually 
met most of my colleagues and things like that. So I don't know what, what those conversations sound like. I'm also in a bubble where COVID isn't really a problem and things are open and whatever, kids are in school. So I feel very disconnected from what the conversations surely look like outside of my immediate circle. Um, but even before the pandemic, I don't, I don't, I don't remember hearing a lot of discussions with the word burnout or for that matter, the phrase moral injury. But I, now that I'm reading about them, I can connect a lot of things people were talking about to those concepts, even though those concepts weren't used explicitly. And especially more the moral injury part than the burnout part, to be honest. Like yeah. the burnout part, I have a hard time understanding how that's different than just feeling like you don't really want to do the thing. And I feel that way about work, but I also feel that way about household chores. And I feel that way about exercise. And I feel that way, like, so I'm not really sure where, when it reaches a level that's not just like, of course, I don't always like having parts of my job or things like that. But the moral injury part to me is much clearer in my mind that it's like, I resent that my job is making me do things that compromise my values. Mm -hmm. That feels very vivid to me. And I now recognize it as a big part of, to the extent that my dissatisfaction exists and has increased over time that basically explains all the variants um and i think it's probably related to a lot of reasons why people leave academia and or quit grad school or things like that and i don't know that they would even necessarily use those words but if you are leaving because you're seeing people treated badly around you isn't that moral injury isn't that yeah like not wanting to compromise your values not wanting to be in a system that yeah, the comp- that isn't aligned with your values. But I don't know mm-hmm. that people explicitly think of it that way, but it sounds to me like that's what's going on a lot. Yeah, that that concept shed a really different light on the concept of burnout for me. I think my previous associations with the term burnout were like, um, yeah, you're just like overwhelmed with stress. Um, and actually like I had some hesitation about um, or like feelings of reluctance about talking about burnout on this podcast, at least from my own perspective, because um, I think that I lead a very unstressful professional life for the most part compared to most other people. Um, But uh, not to say that um, burnout because of really, really stressful working conditions is not, is not valid. I just, personally, I, I couldn't um, like relate to that. Um, but I do feel like, um, yeah, this idea that it's easy to get, um, to feel trapped in uh, participating in activities that go against my values. And that feels um, extremely frustrating and, yeah, like hard to escape when you, um, when structural change is slow, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I, you know, it's interesting because in, in academia, there's such a, and you know, one of our earliest episodes was on imposter syndrome. Right. And, and I think there's something kind of similar where there's a very, there are these sort of cultural and other reasons why people just don't talk about certain things because you're evaluated so much on your productivity. So I do wonder, you know, I mean, beyond just like, yeah, I have better days, worse days, whatever, this kind of sustained pattern of exhaustion, disconnection. I wonder how many people feel that, that aren't either to themselves haven't identified it or just don't feel comfortable talking about it. You know, and I, I've wondered sometimes like, we, we sort of, we make jokes about dead wood in academia and, mm-hmm. and I've wondered how many, you know, how many like more senior people who sort of become less productive, like, you know, the joke is like, oh, they go skiing every weekend and they're just coasting on their cushy tenured life. But I, mm-hmm. I have wondered like how many people um, who, who, you know, we sort of joke about that are, are like, they got burned out at some point and, and they got numb to their job. Um, and, and yeah, like, I think the sort of like traditional theories of burnout sort of in some ways, you know, as I was getting reading a little bit of background and getting ready for this episode, there, there does seem to be kind of a continuity. And I would, I would be very interested to hear like people are current active researchers on burnout, what they think of the moral injury idea. But there are these sort of older ideas that are older in the sense that they've been studied for a longer time about like mismatches between 
um, a sense of control mismatches in a sense of like uh, um, not being rewarded for the things that you want to be rewarded for. And there, there has been some discussion about mismatches and values between the person and the organization. I think that's where it leads in most strongly to this idea of moral injury. Um, you know, so I, I first encountered this idea of moral injury, I think it was about a year ago, when on Twitter, um, Andrew Wilson at Psych Scientists posted a very, I think, personal and searing thread about having gone through burnout and talked about this idea of moral injury explicitly. And, and that was the first time I encountered it. And so, you know, it, it comes from people studying PTSD and combat veterans, this idea mm -hmm. that people at war oftentimes are coerced or channeled into behaving in ways that violate their values. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're a soldier, you're supposed to kill people or you're supposed to do other things. Um, and, and so sort of extending that to this idea that, and so it, 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 I think has been talked about a lot in the healthcare field that people go into healthcare with a very strong, some of them go into it with a very strong set of values of caring for people. They want to, you know, help people get better and, and serve patients and they go into it and they end up like having to, you know, spend all day doing paperwork and deny people coverage because the insurance won't pay for it. And they become these sort of like cogs in a giant machine that's about extracting value and not about helping people. And so I think that's where the conversation among healthcare practitioners has, has come from. And so, you know, when, when Andrew posted about this, the, you know, the idea of in academia, and it really resonated with me that we go into academia with, you know, these ideals and values that we want to do science, we want to discover new things, and we want to educate people. Mm -hmm. um, and we end up being evaluated by these metrics and by how much money can you generate for your university mm -hmm. or how high is your H index. Um, and, and we're denied the resources sometimes to do what we want to do. And then I think, you know, the maybe where it comes closest to things we've talked about on this podcast, which I think would be really interesting to talk about is open science, right? Because that's how Brian Nosek, he has this like big roadshow colloquium that he gave at Oregon a few years ago that I think he, he gives him, and he always talks about, he starts by talking about like your values as a scientist and about trying to create, t turn academia into something that's better aligned with your values. Mm -hmm. And that to me just like really, Mm -hmm. You know, the, there's a very clear line between that and this idea of sort of moral injury and, and the, the effects it can have on people's ability to like remain productive, remain present in their work, um, to not feel exhausted and disconnected and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I think I've noticed, yeah, for sure. When I think about instances in my professional life that make me feel something that resonates with the moral injury thing. Mm -hmm. There's two kinds of experiences I have. One is open science stuff or reform. And the other is like diversity issues, speaking up about like sexual harassment or things like that. In both cases, I found that when I think I'm just saying something that I think everyone shares those values, I think it's relatively non-controversial. And I get the reaction of like, oh, wow, that's so courageous of you. My feeling is what? Like I was stepping out on a limb by saying that and that like you're telling me that it's courageous because you're telling me that people aren't going to support me. That's what that's courageous mm -hmm. means to me is like, mm -hmm. we don't have your back. Not necessarily the same people saying that's courageous, Yeah, right. but, but the people who are saying it's courageous are recognizing that other people won't have my back. And in both cases, I think it's just so disappointing when you realize that something that should be a shared value that should be like the people should be like, Oh, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. That is how we would like, you know, we would like to be careful not to discriminate or act in ways that are go against our values or whatever, but actually what, what it is to speak up about those things is to be courageous and be bold and be whatever. And it's so frustrating to realize that that's the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess you sort of just answered this, questions I mean but I was curious like when do you um yeah when do you guys feel like you or in what ways do you feel like you are um put in situations where you have to act against your values 
I mean, I, I think the the thing that I've so one one area that I've tried to push back on that I actually feel very fortunate to have colleagues around me, enough colleagues around me who I think also see things that way is is the sort of evaluating people by H indexes and grant dollars and things like that, as opposed to like some semblance of doing good research in a rigorous and valid way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, and that's where the, you know, there, the, these sort of contextual factors. So one is right. Like the people around you who started that way, if they've gotten burned out and exhausted and now they're just going through the motions of going with what the system wants them to do, they don't have your back. And then the people that actually buy into the the different value system, they don't have your back. And then the institution is pressuring everyone to do things that way. So, you know, it's not just like the people around you, which I think in academia, the people around you are extra important because at least if you're a professor and we're talking about other professors because of shared governance and, and sort of, you know, departments running things and whatever, but then also like people in leadership and with power who are, you know, not rewarding you and not rewarding the people around you that you're trying to help for doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, expecting you to, to, you know, hit certain benchmarks of dollars generated or whatever. So th- those are the things that, you know, that's one category of thing that makes me, um, you know, feel like if, if things, like I, like I said, I feel very fortunate where I am now, but if, if things started to go in that direction and felt like they were going too far, I think, you know, I hope that I would get out because I think if I didn't, it would eat at my soul. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is like the open science stuff. I think a lot of people have talked about how like when psychology 10 years ago first started having this conversation, people saying, hey, that thing you've been doing, maybe, you know, maybe there was a problem with that. And, you know, some people were just like, I have no idea. But a lot of people who had talked themselves yeah. into being okay with it were suddenly like, felt like this weight yeah. had lifted. Like, yeah. right. oh, those nagging doubts in the back of my head. Um, you know, I don't have to tell them to shut up anymore. Um, I think that was another, yeah, that's another time I've sort of experienced something in this domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 For, for me, it sometimes comes up in teaching too. So like there's, there's like one thing that I, that sort of like resonated me with a description of the experience of people in the medical field, which is just like, feeling like you're part of like a business instead of um, the kind of institution that you thought you were part of. And yeah, so sometimes it feels like um, you're like delivering like a product to, um, to students or you're expected to, and also to students' parents. Like right now, um, students' parents at UA are having like a huge influence on the decisions that the administration is making. Um, and they always do, but in particular now, maybe um, with the way that be- COVID is being handled and things like that. And it's like, you know, we paid for you know, my, um, my kids to have this, like the college experience. Um, and so being expected to sort of cater to that. And also I find that um, even just like assigning grades along some kind of system that's supposed to be uh, supposed to be some kind of meritocracy, I find sometimes disingenuous and um, and it feels like unsatisfying and like it doesn't map onto a more meaningful um, way of ascribing like credit and value to people's work. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are, those were some of the things that, of course, yeah, I, I thought of open science first and, um, and some of these other things that you, you guys were talking about. And with teaching and mentoring also, there's a similar thing to what the article talks about with healthcare workers where like to really deliver what the students deserve, you have to go above and beyond what you're paid to do. So like you're expected mm-hmm. to spend X number of hours on your teaching, yeah. but then when students come to you and, you know, need more support, of course you should give it. But when you ask for recognition for that or like, you know, for that to be yeah. compensated or included in your thing when you don't get that so then you're stuck having to make this impossible decision of do I do it in my own free time do I deny the student this thing that they very justifiably expect and deserve and yeah I think for me what 
with all of these things, what really bites is that often the powers that be have explicitly stated values in line with my own. So like mm-hmm. they, we say that science is about getting it right, about being transparent, showing your work, correcting other people. But then if you actually do that, you get slapped down or the institutions say that they want diversity, mm-hmm. that they want people to be treated fairly. They want to level the playing field. But then when you work to do that, you're treated like, yeah, some kind of rogue actor. And I think it's, it's one thing to like knowingly speak truth to power. It's another thing to speak truth that you think is consistent with what the powers want and then find out that you're speaking mm-hmm. truth to power, you know, like yeah, right. that's, I think the part that's especially enraging to me yeah. is when. My, my colleague, Jennifer Fry does research on this. She calls it institutional betrayal. That's um, mm-hmm. th- this idea that that is, that's a very damaging thing to people. And yeah, like I, you know, I, you know, the, the sort of running joke of academia that like we create committees constantly, whatever. And I, there's been a lot of discussion around racial justice and social justice and diversity, equity, inclusion recently, where a lot of people are very concerned that universities are doing a lot of lip service that they're not going to back up. And I, and, you know, so there, there are people who've been working on these kinds of issues and caring about them for years who are disproportionately, I think people of color and women and, and sexual minorities and other people. And then there's, I think in, in some ways a very, you know, like a very positive uptick in other people who are kind of new to it, but, or, or who've always cared, but now actually want to do something. And that's all, so that's all great. Um, but like, there is this phenomenon of like, you know, okay, so if we name a committee, then we can say we did something and anyone who complains to us, we can put on the committee or, mm-hmm. or we can point to the committee and say, yes, we're doing something or the task force or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing's going to happen. And that's going to burn out the people on it because they're going to spend all this time and energy there. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen. They're going to. And so I, I've seen people who have exper- long experience in this domain saying, don't agree to chair the diversity committee unless you have money and power. Like yeah. part of negotiating to do that is they have to give you a budget and they have to tell you what you're going to have the power to do. And then you do it. If, if, yeah. you, if it fits with, you know, the rest, or then you consider doing it or whatever. But right. um, I think that's really wise about a lot of things, but especially anything related to your values, especially in that domain where there's just structurally, you know, the default is not to want to do what that committee is going to say to do. And so, yeah. Yeah. A related experience I've had a lot is being put on a committee because I represent a certain perspective. So often either being a woman, being the only woman, like in personality psych, often they want a woman on a committee. So whatever, or the open science perspective or whatever, there's a number of perspectives I might bring to a committee. And then a conversation happens where I have to decide whether to speak up and say, yeah, actually that's not cool because of this or that. So like I can think of a specific committee I was on where they were considering two candidates for a position or an award or that kind of thing, recognition. And one of them was a known sexual harasser that any woman in the field would have been able to tell you, like that person is bad news. And I had to decide whether to speak up and say something. And I did. And I don't know what the other people in the committee think, but I know in some cases when I've raised those issues that I know because of my, the group that I represent, I can tell that people's reaction is, I can't believe she went there. Um, And then I'm like, well, you want the credit of having a woman on the committee, but you don't want to deal with the consequences of what that brings. That's going to make you grapple with things that a man might not have either known or or been willing to bring up. And same Mm -hmm. thing with open science. I was on one committee where I quit the committee because they were engaging in bullshit. And the chair of the committee, when trying to get me to stay on, explicitly said, we need you on this. We need your name on this because mm-hmm. you represent this community and we need the credibility that you bring. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? You could have thought of that for the last 10 months when we were negotiating these things and I was raising these issues and they weren't being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so it really pisses me off that like you put me on this committee, you know that you want the credit and the credibility that comes with having someone from my group, whatever group I represent on that committee. And then if I raise those issues that I'm there to raise, I either get shut down or. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's like, I don't know. Um, It's almost like committees get away with more that way. Like, because you can always like outnumber one person. So if you have one person who's representing women and one person who's representing black people and one person who's representing open science and things like that, then it's like, 
you know, um, yeah, like you say, I mean, you get the credibility of having those perspectives and you don't actually have to, um, defer to those perspectives. And one thing I would, one piece of advice I would give to people if they're asked to be on a committee and it's clear that that's their role is, Mm -hmm. would you be willing to air publicly if it happened? And like, obviously I'm too chicken to name names in these situations, but like, I mean, if you're not, then it makes you feel even more helpless. It's even more frustrating. If you do, then you get accused of airing private, like these things on these committees are supposed to stay private, but that makes puts you in an even more difficult position. So like one thing I would probably now ask for if I was asked to be on a committee and I anticipate this kind of thing happening is can we make all of our like notes from our committee meetings or whatever public or at least have some kind of outlet for accountability and airing these things without making me a bad person if I decide to do that to say here's why I quit or things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah and I think that's a really good lead into something I wanted to to talk about a little bit which is like how do you protect yourself from burnout? Um, and I think that's a really fraught question because I think everything we've been saying, and, and this is very much my perspective, is that the causes are systemic and organizational, right? Like, yes, there are, there are individual, you know, I was reading, doing some background reading, like neuroticism is correlated with burnout. Of course it is, you know, a few other things, but like, those aren't the causes. Those are like, Okay, those are the, you know, when, when the situational cause happens, those are the mm-hmm. first people that are going to go, but they're, that's not, you know, it's not like, and that, I think that's also been a lot of the criticism of like trying to label burnout as a disease as it locates it in the person and, mm-hmm. and or, or people, I mean, not all diseases should be treated that way, but anyway, you know, so, so yeah, so I mean, I think ultimately the issues are systemic, but if you're, you know, I, so yeah, I mean, and I think it is oftentimes it's a double bind. So, you know, that thing I said earlier of like, don't say yes, unless, you know, you've got money and resources. I think that's valuable, but, but, you know, the alternative is not a good one. It's like you sit, you say no, and then you watch this committee happen with some, either someone who cares, who wasn't as savvy as you were, and you watch your friend or, or ally or just someone like-minded get chewed up by it. Or, you know, no, nobody who would do a good job of it says yes. And then, you know, you just watch some, you know, some dingbat do something terrible with the committee. Um, so it's like, you're not, there's not like a, it's a double bind. It's, it, there's not like a, you know, a great option, but at least, you know, I think, I think in those cases, usually like self-protection is better than, you know, the less bad option, but yeah. yeah. I I had two sort of like, responses to that come to mind and both seem um unsatisfying so one is like i know that there's some people who would argue like one solution is to choose a field that is really consistent with your values or a profession that is really consistent with your values and one problem with that i think is what samin has already noted which is that um, it's really hard to tell what an institution or a field's values is. Sometimes it says that it's that they're one thing and they're not, and it takes a long time to figure that out. Um, and then I also know um, some people who I admire quite a bit who just like they approach their professions by, I mean, you're, you're right, Sanjay, that there are double binds, but there are also, um, yeah, there are times when you can sort of like, make some personal sacrifice in favor of the thing that's more in line with your values. Um, and so, I, yeah, I know people who I think t- just tend to really try to always act in line with their values and let the chips fall where they may. The nice thing about that is that like, sometimes I think we are um, wrong that we're going to get kicked out if we um, act in line with our values. And there's a pluralistic ignorance thing going on. I think often where, other people might share our values and might back us up. Um, but again, as me noted, that's not always the case. Um, and then obviously that's a luxury, right? To always act in line with your, your values. Like if you um, can't afford to lose your job or um, any number of other situations, then that's just not really an option. Yeah. I, and yeah, th- I think that's, that's where, yeah, like I'm, I'm in a place in my life now where I have more opportunity to do that than I did earlier. Cause you know, I have yeah. tenure, I, you know, have some financial stability and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's, it's like not everyone, I, I think some it's, it's tough cause there are very systematic differences in who's more likely to survive letting the chips fall where they may based on race, based on gender, things like that. 
So, so I think that's really important. I, I do think I, I've definitely seen some people underestimate like the, their potential to survive or withstand things. And so it's, it's really tough because you don't want to just say like, oh, buck up, you know, just go, you know, don't be chicken, go face the whatever, because that's, that's bullshit. And, and that's, that's going to systematically hurt some people more than others. But it is, I think, you know, useful sometimes to just sort of step back and, and to say like, you know, and, and maybe even sometimes it is a risk, but it's a, it, if you step back, you might decide it's a risk you're willing to take. Um, and I think often we get into these sort of like going through the motion things where we don't ask ourselves that question. And so even if you ask yourself the question, maybe you decide, no, it's not worth taking, but you're probably better off than just to sort of kept going through the motions of your life. You're sort of living your life aware. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's worse. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only two pieces of advice, one is very, very obvious, which is like, have your people, have people that you can lean mm -hmm. on, that you can invent with, that you can go to, and they may not be in your workspace. They might not be in your department or whatever. In some ways that's better. Like have people that, mm -hmm. um, you don't have to worry what they think of you and how they're going to vote on your next promotion or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, one thing that's interesting to me is that the role that journalists have played both in open science and in like the Me Too movement and also with racial justice and things like that, like there are times when people aren't in a position to blow the whistle directly, but journalists, good journalists, I think can tell those stories for people who aren't able to tell them themselves. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you saw something that you can't not say anything about, but you can't take the risk of speaking out openly, then I think contacting a journalist who you trust. And if anyone wants to know names of journalists I trust, I'd be happy to share <laughs> those names. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think that's more, I, think, I mean, I was, yeah. I've been surprised at how effective that avenue has been. Like the institutional, like regulatory bodies do nothing, but good journalists, I think, can really make a difference in giving people a voice in a way that also protects them a bit from some of the potential consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I, I think if you're, if you, another thing that should always be on the table if you're heading towards burnout or if you've reached it is get out. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there are so many, there's just general cultural norms against yeah. that. Oh, you're a quitter. Oh, you're yeah. giving up. There's a lot in uh, academia has a lot of fucked up norms about like our work is superior to, you know, where the pure science, selfless motivation, higher education, blah, blah, blah. There's all these like things we tell ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. Uh, oh, we're not dirty industry, whatever. Um, that's just complete bullshit. And, and so we're in a, you know, an environment that like, you know, I wonder like from a cultural evolution perspective, how much that kind of stuff cropped up to like sustain the institution of academia, um, especially against, you know, uh, um, more recent years as, as things of, you know, academia's kind of, you know, face less public support and all that, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I think like, and have it, having the, and the, this integrates with the things you're saying to me and like having those people to talk to who are outside of your immediate context, who can be that anchor or that reality to say, yeah, you know, rather than like keep, keep getting, keep working until you get tenure and then you can turn into dead wood because you're too numb <laughs> to do anything ever again. <laughs> they can tell you like, why don't you just leave? You know, that's, uh, that should always be on the table. Mm -hmm. Seems like a good place well, to does end. that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> be ready to walk away. And with that, we're done. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, thank you listeners um, for listening to The Black Goat. I hope this episode was interesting and maybe helpful to some of you. And uh, we will talk to you again next time. Mm -hmm.